Welcome to the First Things Podcast. This is Rusty Reno at the editor's desk. And I have with me Scott Yenner, the author of a recent article, Antinatal Engineering in the May 2023 issue. Scott is a professor of political science at Boise State University in Idaho and senior director of state coalitions at the Claremont Institute. Welcome to the podcast, Scott. Thanks for having me on, Rusty. It's always a pleasure. In many ways, this piece, Antinatal Engineering, uh, uh, um, is a kind of case study in what you outline in your early article, earlier article on the sexual counter-revolution, which is to say the way in which being male and being fem- female can be sort of tracked along certain grooves by cultural messaging. Um, so I really appreciate it. Great piece. So why focus on South Korea? Well, I was following the news a little bit, and I saw a couple things happen at the same time in South Korea. The first thing I saw was that the South Korea Supreme Court essentially banned uh, or got rid of South Korea's ban on the importation of sex dolls. <laughs> and second, uh, like in the same week, uh that South Korea had hit an all-time low in total fertility rate, under 0.8. It was something like 0.78 or 0.79 children per woman. And I'd never seen anything that low. I mean, East Asia had been low, and I was like, well, I wonder if these things are related. So I started popping around the Internet, and I found this large anti-feminist movement that was up and running in South Korea. And I'm like, well, this seems like pretty late for this, um, for such a movement. And I just started, you know, poking around to see uh, what had happened in South Korea. And it ended up being just a very interesting history that South Korea went from being the most fertile or fecund, um, you know, what is now modern state in 1960, where the total fertility rate was six per woman within a generation because now we have to redefine generations it <laughs> yes, was indeed. point one one point six that is in 1988 and there so there'd been a total transformation of this country a 75 percent about decrease in its total fertility rate and also its marriage rate and all of this other stuff had happened within you know under 30 years uh, as it modernized and I found it to be just an extremely fascinating condensation of everything that had happened all over the West over the course of 150 years happened mm. in Korea over the course of what we now would call one generation. I used to say a generation was 20 years. Now I say it's 30 years uh, because that's about what the average number of years it takes uh, a woman to have her first child now in the Western world. And uh, so it's, you know, th- those were the tips of the iceberg uh, that got me interested in looking at the iceberg. They really are shocking statistics. Um, here's from the article. In 1970, fewer than 2% of Korean women between the ages of 30 and 34 were unmarried. In effect, every woman in Korea was married 
by the time she was 30 years old. Today, more than 30% are married in that cohort. No, more, more than 30% are unmarried in that cohort. And then you go on, more than 40% of South Koreans below the age 40 have stopped dating. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So we don't just have, um, well, I, you point out in the article that declining fertility um, is connected to decline in marriage and, and ultimately, you, take, you, you know, you got to do something to make a child. And if you're not doing it, it's not, the children aren't coming. Yes, I mean it's it's very true, um, and this this gets back to something that really interests me about the the entire you know demographic collapse is that you know if there's one thing that you can have a certain kind of faith in, I would have thought when I was a young man is that people would have sex and eventually by accident even have children um, that. That natural spring, the natural attraction between men and women, uh, which it didn't seem like you had to do that much to cultivate, um, would be a reliable mechanism for the production of humanity. Mm -hmm. And uh, But it turns out that even the sex act is kind of culturally constructed or supported, and that you need... Um, perhaps tension between men and women or some encouragement uh, to play the role of father and mother for men and women to have uh, procreative fertile sex. And the in South Korea, once again, I think it's kind of an extreme at the end of the, uh, you know, uh, of history kind of deal where even the interest that men and women have in one another sexually seems to be kind of like dissipating. And uh, so I never would have thought in my life that that would be the reality in any kind of culture. But South Korea seems to be the leading edge of mm. that kind of culture. Um, uh, in 2008, uh, Hannah Rosen, who's a, a liberal kind of feminist uh, journalist for The Atlantic, wrote a book called The End of Men. And she talked about various futures that might be in our um, you know, in our path. And she said that, you know, one of them is the massive sexual indifference of East Asia. And, uh, and I think I said in the piece that it's, it's hard to like, and she said, that's probably not going to happen. Like one thing that you know is the human desire for love endures. Well, does it? Like sexual indifference actually is better than hostility between the sexes, which seems to be uh, what's on uh, the agenda in South Korea and maybe in other parts of the world. So, um, so yeah, I mean, thinking about what the world is going to look like when family is nowhere near the center of a large part of our population is kind of the project that I'm undertaking with this case study. It is it is uh, um, striking, and and you point out that uh, reducing fertility or or the or the this situation, although maybe they overshot the mark, it was a plan. Uh, it wasn't. I mean, you could make the argument the sexual revolution in America, um, 
you know, economic changes, the move from industrial economy to post-industrial con- economy, blah, 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 blah. And this all, all these factors contribute to declining fertility in the United States. But we go to South Korea and like they, 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 they use some really powerful social engineering tools. Yeah, I mean, I, I've often thought about what the situation in South Korea demanded um, in when they began this plan. So if I could tell the story a little bit like this, that uh, after the Korean War, the leader was Sigmund Rhee, and Sigmund Rhee's policy when it came to the division of Korea was a reunification policy. And there was a coup in 1960 uh, led by General Park, and Park changed that like geopolitical goal of South Korea from a reunification to peaceful coexistence. Mm-hmm. And it meant that South Korea was going to have to win the battle. That is, North Korea had, you know, itself, it had China behind it in more than one way. Uh, it had uh, the Soviet Union behind it. South Korea was going to have to like be more attractive, uh, more powerful than North Korea and hope to be the future of, you know, the, the Korean people. And part of his plan was to take this backwards agrarian population and urbanize it. And he thought that in order to urbanize it, you had to detach people from their desire to have large families. So they made urban life very attractive. They subsidized it. They penalized people uh, in the late, you know, late 60s and into the 70s for having large families. You'd lose tax credits. You'd lose housing allowances. You couldn't get bigger homes in order to basically encourage people to have smaller families. They did a large PR campaign um, that involved like national slogans um, that ended with the idea, even two children is a lot. Um, They uh, paid for subsidized various ways of uh, exercising contraception and abortion. Um, Vasectomies, they were incentivized. Tube tying, as they called it, were incentivized all to bring down the birth rate and urbanize the population so that they could compete globally with North uh, Korea. And it worked. Like South Korea's growth rate every year would, you know, just accelerate. It would be 8%, 12%. The highest uh, sustained growth that it had over a period of time was 18% growth in GDP a year. It was eating its seed corn. It was... But it was getting where it needed to be geopolitically in order to compete with North Korea. So I'm not even saying that I think that the initial effort to uh, grow South Korea uh, economically uh, was necessarily wrong. But this, uh, the long-term implications of it were what we have today, I think, uh, because the propaganda was more successful than the economic incentives are more important than the economic incentives. They have, they have this one other feature, Rusty, that I think is very interesting, is that there was an old tradition in uh, South Korea, apparently what they called uh, money clubs, where you'd get small groups of women who would come together and do things together and pay a kind of fee. And then they would, uh, if someone was in need, they would take the, the money that had been collected and help out uh, the mothers or wives in times of need. Well, these clubs were repurposed in the late 60s to be what they called mother's clubs, like big Tupperware parties, where the older ladies in South Korea 
would propound the ideology of contraception in smaller families, encouraged mm. by American uh, 501c3s like the Ford and Rockefeller Foundations, and by the South Korean government, and by the Planned Parenthood of South Korea that was established at this time as a quasi-governmental agency. And by having this kind of spread out set of uh, clubs all over the country, and there were, you know, uh, tens of thousands of these clubs with about 30 members each, uh, they could really spread the ideology, uh, the propaganda of antinatalism throughout the country. So yeah, it was an intentional plan. It had a kind of geopolitical um, initial purpose. And then um, after South Korea passed North Korea, they didn't stop with the propaganda uh, and the policies. And you know, obviously that's where they landed today. You observe that in South Korea, feminism is much more an effect of this antinatalist policy than it was a cause. Again, you could see in, in the West, you could argue that feminism is a kind of engine of, of the transformation of women's attitudes. But you observe that it doesn't really come on the scene, feminism, until fairly recently. Yeah, I mean, I would say that the the cause of antinatalism in South Korea was uh, urbanization in order to achieve national greatness. And the family, as you can see kind of historically, can get in the way of building nations. If people's primary allegiance is to a tribe or to a family, they end up, you know, being backwards. And the Koreans... I had an intentional effort to build a nation that would have the rule of law and uh, favor economic growth at the expense of not family allegiance, but like the time that you would spend in your family. Mm-hmm. And, um, and only later when women were seriously underemployed because the program had been so successful in leading to fewer children did something akin to feminism grow up in Korea? I would say that its early birds, the early birds of it were chirping in the 90s. And uh, and only recently has it become kind of more radical American style um, feminism. And uh, because women, as I say, were seriously underemployed, what to do? Well, work and play if you're not going to be a mother, if you're not going to marry. And there's an ideology to... Uh, kind of buttress that, and that ideology ends up being feminism, Korean style. And uh, so, I mean, it's one of these great mysteries of human being, you know, that that almost all over the world, birth rates have been collapsing for the last 50 years. And when you look at it over a longer period of time, you know, a couple hundred years. And uh, no matter what kind of social system you adopt, China's one policy, one child policy and American feminism have yielded almost the exact same birth rates. So hmm. tyranny in one form and American feminism, whatever you want to call that, uh, in another form have led to the same kind of uh, outcomes. And uh, so it's happening all at the same time, and it makes you kind of wonder whether we're free. <laughs> <laughs> well, you you entertain the argument, uh, the so-called Swedish model, um, and, and this is the argument. I mean, most social scientists are progressives, and they want to say that the solution, anything 
we're, we are progressing. If there are problems, it's because we haven't progressed far enough. <laughs> yeah. And so the argument here is that if you, if you make a more permissive sexual culture, detach children from, you know, the requirement of being ma uh, a married couple, and you have lots and lots of public programs for working women, fr free childcare, et cetera, et cetera, you'll get more children. And you observe that sort of, but, uh, you know, immigration changes. So if you start parsing data, it starts to look like, ah, actually, maybe a little, but not enough to make a difference. Is that fair? Yeah. Um, I mean, there's a couple of things to say there. Uh, one theory about raising um, birth rates is encouraging marriage. And the idea here is that the birth of children will almost always come at the back end of this channel. So if we encourage marriage, we'll ultimately encourage people to have children. So mm -hmm. a deep but single channel toward childbirth. The modern progressive view is the best way to promote childbirth is to diversify the channels whereby oh, you nice. have children mm -hmm. and therefore uh, make it easier and by opening up the number of pathways uh, to having children. And that's the Swedish model. So, you know, a, a vast majority of children in Sweden are born outside of marriage. Um, and, but, you know, many are born within marriage, so there's more than one channel. Whereas in South Korea, it has the lowest out-of-wedlock out birth rate in the modern world. 2% of children in South Korea are born outside of marriage. So there, like marriage and child uh, and having children are just still linked uh, in a very old world way. And uh, so that when fewer people marry, there is logically going to be a lot fewer babies. So Western intellectuals say the best way to fix this problem is to just diversify the pathways toward, uh, toward having they, children. They need the rainbow solution. Yes, they need the rainbow solution exactly, and um, and th and they say this is you know always true that the rainbow solution is always the true true solution, but like that doesn't give an account of what was like in Korea in 1960, where there was just one channel and it was deep, and and the thing that I think we have to recognize that America is more like Korea than it's like Sweden on this matter. Like even after years and years of sexual revolution, the idea that marriage and childbirth are connected in the American mind is actually still very true. Mm. And, uh, and while maybe about 40% of children are born outside of wedlock, um, the, the, the birth rates in America are much higher among the married. And when you take out the black population, um, actually, the white population and the, uh, the the idea of marriage and childbirth are still, you know, like connected in action quite a bit more, more like Korea than like uh, like Sweden. Mm. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I think America is, uh, as, as much as it seems weird to say it, relatively a strong family uh, model, the, uh, the way it approaches marriage and therefore... Really, the best way to encourage childbirth is to encourage marriage. You observe that current, this is a quote from the article, current statistics indicate 
that a quarter of American women who enter their 40s in the coming decade will be unmarried and childless. I, I, I got to say, when I read that, my jaw dropped. I, I thought, unprecedented in human history. Uh, it's funny, you know, children are not as strongly connected to male identity as child children are childbirth is to female identity. And probably you can imagine in prehistoric societies the dominant alpha male monopolizing the fertility of the tribe and and freezing out the beta males. But I really can't envision any time in human history when anything other than a tiny minority of women who for you know go into convents and so on choose infertility. Yeah, I mean our future is going to be very interesting uh, in this way. <laughs> um, it just, I, 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 I'm just, I have a hard time kind of getting my mind. I mean, I don't think people realize how kind of world historical this is. Yeah, I mean, a post-family woman is something, or a post-marriage woman is something the world has never seen. And uh, if people are unmarried at that rate when they're 40, I mean, presumably they're going to be unmarried at even, uh, you know, back end rates, you know, even uh, at, at, at uh, older ages. And, you know, we often only think of this in terms of like who's going to take care of people when they're older. These numbers are like colliding with the idea also that when you are born, People born now are going to live, you know, to be almost 100 years old or into their 90s. And a lot of people are going to be demented and have Alzheimer's and have uh, these uh, congenital problems. And who's going to take care of them? That's kind of where we stop thinking about it. But what the effect of that uh, large number of single, never married females and childless females are going to have on our politics, on our regime, on our political culture is something that, like, because it's historically unprecedented, it's something that we don't really have a great grasp on. Um, I mean, we have great poetry from the ancients, Aristophanes' Assembly of Women. Um, uh, temporary, which, with, uh, yeah. temporary, not <laughs> permanent. Yeah, and uh, but yeah, it's going to be a permanent condition for us. And I think it's something, thinking about this post-family uh, culture, is is going to be something that we're going to have to like confront as a real reality in art and in politics um, over the next years, uh, because I just you know obviously very few people think about this. Very few people reach forty. Uh, I shouldn't say very few. Like maybe it's increasing numbers, but uh, no one's not everyone gets up and says you know I just would rather go through life uh, childless and unmarried. Uh, they just think it can kind of automatically happen. Well, it doesn't mm -hmm. when the culture doesn't support it. And uh, that was the theme of that first article that I wrote for you, uh, Rusty, right. The Sexual Counter-Revolution. Right. And uh, so I think we actually have to start talking about the dystopian future of, uh, of large segments of the population being unmarried and childless. Yeah, like I said, I think it has a more profound effect on women than men. Yeah. Men go off to war. They, um, I mean, I think there's ways that, that, um, that men can function, have historically functioned, uh, pirates, uh, you know, soldiers of fortune, et cetera, et cetera. 
Um, but women, yeah, I, I think you have a, if you have a quarter of all women are childless at age 40, you have all this maternal instinct that's ambient. And I think it'll just amp up progressive safetyism, you know, as because I think a, a mother can discharge those instincts on her, her brood in the home. And if those instincts are redirected towards politics, oof, <laughs> I think we already see it in part. In yeah, I mean, the, the city will be reimagined as a family. And yes. all, the, all the maternal concerns that one would have for children will be for one's fellow citizens. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, <laughs> uh, um, and you conclude, as you said, and this harkens back to the earlier piece, which I really strongly recommend that listeners uh, consult, The Sexual Counter-Revolution. Uh, you, you, your observation is that honor and shame are far more powerful incentives and disincentives than money. Yeah. You can do tax, I mean, tax credits until you're blue in the face. But if the, if the basic honor and shame economy is counter motherhood and family, you're just not going to get much of it. Yeah. I mean, South Korea recognized that it had made a mistake and gone too far in the early aughts. And uh, they have been pouring money. I think the number since 2010 is something like $200 billion into mm. reversing its uh, policies. Um, they even recently, seeing the hostility among the sexes, put like $70 million into dance parties and things to encourage dating among South Koreans. All of this to no effect. I mean, all of this coincides with the dropping of the birth rate, which was 1.2, or excuse me, 1.05 in 2017 to 0.78 or 9 in 2022. Like it just went down 30% or 20%. And, uh, and so all the incentives, I believe, all the incentives in the world uh, don't move people. Um, we, we sing a lullaby when we think that tax credits or housing allowances or anything like that is going to move the needle because it's something we have control, direct control over and have a law that, or a lever that we can use to change human behavior. But a culture is much broader, deeper. It affects us. So in this way, I've always been an Aristotelian. Uh, I believe that the regime, what it honors, what it holds to be good is really what moves human beings. Hmm. And uh, and that our regime has kind of turned against um, the idea of natural relations, natural enduring relations in the family against procreation. It doesn't honor it um, like that ultimately is the most important and also most difficult thing to reverse. Um, and it's a it's a sobering conclusion. But if you want a future as a people honor has to go to mothers. Mm. And, uh, and I just don't think there's any way around that uh, fact. So if you're only going to talk about caregivers and not honoring mothers, it's also not going to get the job done. Like that particular thing has to be honored by society. And I honor it. Don't get me wrong. I honor it totally. And um, also, but mm -hmm. honor works in concert with shame. And I think that uh, we live in a, our regime, I would call it a, a kind of, it, it, it seeks the marginal. In other words, it honors the marginal and shames the normal. 
uh, in order to create a more inclusive society. And to turn that around, it would be very painful for people to say, you know, that single childless woman, uh, you know, she really didn't succeed. And I think, I, I, I cannot imagine our society, we're, we're a long way from people being willing to be even gently punitive of that which is not honored. Yeah. Um, it's really, and, and again, the single women with their maternal instinct, just ambient, I think, you know, how can you, how can you be mean to that child? You know, your fellow citizen child. Yes. No, uh, I, 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 no meanness. And uh, I agree. I think you can on kind of very personal levels, uh, recognize the heartache and, uh, you know, difficulties of childless, uh, unmarried women. Um, but you know, like a political program or something. Well, no, that, but, yeah. but old, old maid was a, yeah. uh, a shame term. I mean, you know, it was, she didn't do it. She failed. Yeah. She and was I, an old and maid. I use, I use the word childless while we've been talking, but like there's other words for that. And, uh, barren, yeah, is another word for it that kind of suggests that yeah, there was that's something a, wrong. Yeah, well, uh, it's a it's a sobering conversation, Scott. <laughs> and uh, um, uh, let's let's hope for the best. You know, the I think reading you, I have it really has caused me to see the old adage: you know, drive nature out the front door; uh, she re-enters in the in the back. Well. Yes and no, but we're very plastic beings and we can be men and be women in really quite disordered ways or at least ways that are not conducive to human flourishing. Uh, we can, I, I think for instance, we're gonna have artificial re, uh, ch production of children and um, people will be able to live on that kind of thin gruel um, somehow. Uh, uh, anyway, I don't want to speculate more. Thanks for being on the podcast, Scott. It's really, really been great. Thanks for having me on, Rusty. I appreciate it.